Good morning, Gospel Life Church and those who are gathering us online. We're so glad that you're joining us as we study God's Word. Uh, I am currently on a little mini vacation with my family and so a little bit more casual and not in my normal office setting where I've been recording the sermons. Uh, so hopefully uh, you can still uh, focus on our study here even even in my uh, less formal attire. Uh, but we're, we're having a great time together just for this week and we'll be back uh, over the weekend and be there on Sunday for their drive-in service. Today we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapters 63 and 64, and the title of our sermon is The Blood-Soaked Splendor of Future Glory. And as you hear a title like that, it can kind of maybe catch you off guard a little bit, and really it does to some degree. I mean, we've been seeing the glorious goodness of Jesus Christ as God's agent being sent by God in the last couple chapters and how he's bringing salvation to his people. And then there's this jarring start here to verse or chapter 63 with verses 1 through 6 uh, that bring us back to the reality that uh, while Jesus is the Savior of the world, he's also uh, the king and judge. And so it's important for us to understand that. And so today, as we look at Isaiah 63 and 64, we're going to see God's agent, Jesus Christ, provides a justice to the earth uh, that has never been known by humanity, a perfect justice. And that's what we're looking forward to in the future glory uh, in Jesus' return, is that perfect justice that is given to us. Before we get into our text, hopefully you've turned there, we're going to pray and then I'll read us through our text. So would you join me in prayer? Father, we come and we thank you so much for the fact that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who we can put our trust and confidence in, in a world that is currently very chaotic, uh, at least here in the United States, but often it is in, in other parts of the world as well. Lord, we need stability. We need a strong foundation upon which to stand. And Lord, I pray that it would be Jesus Christ, that we as Christians would not uh, not plant ourselves and not build our lives around anything other than Jesus Christ. And I pray, pray during our current crisis that as Christians, we would be known by our love and our love would be, be, would be able to be expressed to all because of our foundation that is found in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you use, use our time now as we, as we talk about justice, uh, use our time, Lord, to see that our longing, our desire should be the justice that Jesus Christ brings and help us to be a, a reflection of that justice uh, in, in, in the way that we live in this life, uh, a calling to people to see their sinfulness, to repent of their sin and find their hope in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior. Truly right now, as we look forward to the justice that is to come, the opportunity right now is that we might find grace and mercy. And I pray that if there's anyone watching today, that they would see that Jesus Christ is offering to them today grace and mercy and love that can last for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, our main point is you are to live in thankfulness to God for the perfect justice of future glory. You are to live in thankfulness to God for the perfect justice of future glory. So let's read our text. So hopefully you've found your place there in Isaiah chapter 63. So follow along with me as I read. Who is this who comes from Edom? 
in crimsoned garments from Bozrah. Who is this splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trod in the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on earth. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert? They did not stumble. Like livestock, they go down into the valley, and the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage, your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rent the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and, you sin and we sinned. In our sin, we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one 
who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquity. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? This is God's word. Today we are going to be wrestling through the idea of the perfect justice of God. And in it we see here uh, some, some terrifying images that are displayed here for us. And it are, can be difficult for us to embrace. And in fact, as we, as we think about what's going on, even in our, our world today, and the injustices that we see, and even as there's this clamor for justice, yet what do we find? We continue to find injustice over and over again. Our desire should be for the justice that only comes from Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can bring this perfect justice. So today I have two questions to ask of our text. And the first is, what will the perfect justice of Jesus be like in the future glory? As we look forward to the day, and the specific aspect of future glory here is his second return. As we look forward to that day when he returns again uh, to make all things right and to institute his glory, what will it look like? Well, uh, the first six verses here describe for us uh, a, a portrayal of what that is going to look like, that day of vengeance and the year of redemption. And really, it is the full and final justice of God. It, it's described here as a bloody justice that brings an end to all his enemies. Therefore, it is full and final. Yet in its fullness and finality, this justice is splendid, or the Hebrew word here is hadur. It is, literally means to honor or adorn or glorify and magnify. And we see that word splendid is, is how it's uh, translated here in our ESV right there in verse 1. And this is the perfect justice of Jesus Christ. It is full and it is final. But as we described in our title, it also is blood-soaked splendor. And, and, and in that, what I mean, what we see here, we see this idea in verse 1 of these crimson garments, these garments stained red. Uh, or we see his his red apparel in verse 2, garments like he who treads the winepress. So here the picture is the the one who's stamping out the, the grapes in order to make the wine and his clothes is getting splashed up with the, the redness of the grapes. And so um, you have this red apparel that uh, God's agent here is, is, is wearing. In turn, it says, if we were wondering what that is, is it just, is it just grapes? Is that what he's describing? No, that's just the picture to help us understand. We go down to uh, verse 3. And we see here, it is the lifeblood splattered on my 
garments, he describes here, staining all of his apparel. It is the the blood of his enemies being trampled under his feet. And and truly, that's what Scripture describes for us all, all throughout, that Jesus will put all his enemies under his feet finally when he returns. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what we're waiting for. And yet it's described as splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength there at the end of verse one, showing the greatness, this, his power, his, his authority in the way that he is dressed, dressed like one who is right to judge and right to conquer. And this justice is speaking here. It says, it is I speaking in righteousness and mighty to save. It is, it is a word of righteousness. And that, that makes sense. I mean, we begin to understand even what justice is. It is God doing what is right, which makes it almost synonymous to the word righteousness and doing what is right. And God, as the creator of the world, the author of all things, he is the one who determines what is right. And so as we understand Jesus coming in justice here, justice that crushes these enemies, justice that is splendor in its power and authority, it is his righteousness, and yet also described as being mighty to save. We're going to look at how those two fit together here in a minute. But as we think about this picture that is being presented to us of his justice, we have to understand it is full and final. It is a blood-soaked splendor, but it is describing the righteous wrath of God. In fact, we see here these words used are the righteous anger of God. In verse three at the end, I trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath, or in verse five, his wrath is upholding him. Even though his own arm brought me salvation and also my wrath upheld me. Or in verse six, I trampled down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath. Here we have the wrath of God, the anger of God on display. And we have to ask the question, how does this connect with mighty to save, and the hand that brings salvation. Well, we have to understand what God's wrath truly is. Very basic definition by Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology is, is the wrath of God is the doctrine that God intensely hates all sin. Or as Sam Storm defined it, divine wrath is righteous antagonism towards all that is unholy. It is a revulsion of God's character to that which violates the will of God, or that which is a violation of God's will. It's that, it's that aspect of God in which he hates that which is, is sinful, is rebellious, is unholy. And in turn, that, that is how God then can be holy. Like we can't separate holiness from wrath because holiness is his separation from sin. And he is able to be holy. Why? Because he hates sin. Because he hates sin, he is holy. And so we also see that, that we could also talk about divine wrath as 
uh, a function or part of even his divine love. And so in that idea, we can understand why Jesus would talk about salvation and wrath together in the same act. Or as Sam Storms writes, for God's wrath is his love for holiness and truth and justice. And it is because God passionately loves purity and peace and perfection that he reacts angrily towards anything and anyone who defiles them. And in turn, this, this love for his holiness is what ultimately produces the salvation of his people. He makes them holy. And ultimately, he eradicates their th- sin by placing that sin on Jesus Christ on the cross so that he might pay for that sin. And yet that same hatred of sin that causes Jesus to go to the cross in order for his people to be saved is also is also going to be poured out on all of those who remain in their sin and have not put their trust in Jesus Christ, whose sins have not been forgiven through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, who those who have not responded in repentance and faith. So that God remains holy and righteous. J.I. Packer writes this, Would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be morally perfect? Surely not. But it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil, which is a necessary part of moral perfection that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. That that God is so morally perfect and so holy and so loving of that which is good that he adversely reacts to evil. Again, this is our understanding of what God's wrath is, his hatred for evil, for sin, for that which is unholy. In turn, Leon Morris goes on to say, Then too, unless we give a real consent to the wrath of God, unless we hold that men really deserve to have God visit upon them the painful consequences of their wrongdoing, we empty God's forgiveness of its meaning. For if there is no ill desert, God ought to overlook sin. We can think of forgiveness as something real only when we hold that sin has betrayed us into a situation where we deserve to have God inflict upon us the most serious consequences. And that is upon such a situation that God's grace supervenes. When the logic of the situation demands that he should take action against the sinner and he yet takes action for him, then and then alone can we speak of grace. But there is no room for grace if there is no suggestion of dire consequences merited by sin. I mean, and this is why we see here in this description of God's judgment and that we also find his declaration of his salvation because What happens in this very act of displaying his wrath in its fullness and in its finality, all enemies being crushed under his feet? At the same time, he also proclaims the fullness and finality of his salvation. Because that when Jesus crushes all his enemies and we are still safe, we have been truly 
utterly, completely saved. We have been redeemed so that this wrath is not poured out upon us. You see, we, we deserve as human beings who have sinned and rebelled against God to be part of those crushed in the winepress of God's wrath. And yet what do we find? If we have put our faith and trust in Jesus, we will not face his wrath. His wrath has been absorbed by Jesus Christ. Now here it is a, descri- a descriptor of all Jesus's enemies. We have it described as Edom. And I think the reason he uses Edom is because Edom is, uh, can be literally translated red or ruddy. It's a descendant of Esau who had that red or ruddy appearance as well. And so it's meant to describe all his enemies just as Esau was meant to describe all of God's enemies as well. When, when God says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And Paul takes that up in Romans chapter 9. That here are the people of God and here are the non-people of God. Uh, Bozrah is actually a city in Edom, a a main city there, that it could be literally translated into wine press. And so, again, a reason why I just play on words here with uh, what's being described here, the red apparel and uh, the trampling of the the grapes and the wine press as examples of the, the crushing of God's enemies under the feet of Jesus Christ. So here we're seeing all of God's enemies defeated finally. And this is the vision of the perfect justice that is future, that is yet to come. And we we see this in chapter 64 and verse 12. We see that this is not something that has yet happened. Why? Because at the uh, what we're going to see next is is the response of God's people, and it's this prayer to God. And at the end of the prayer, what what does God's people say? They say, "Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Will you not come?" They're saying, "And bring perfect justice." It hasn't happened yet. Verses one through six hasn't happened yet, yet it's future. And so as Christians begin to consider and are aware of the future glory of Jesus Christ that includes the coming of his perfect justice, how are we meant to respond? And that's really what the rest of the text deals with. And so my second question today is, how are God's people to respond to the perfect justice of Jesus? Well, we see here a prayerful dependence on and a passionate desire for the perfect justice of Jesus Christ. The response is this prayerful dependence on and a passionate desire for the perfect justice of Jesus Christ. And, And in it, they ask three things of their Lord. And so the first thing we see in uh, verses 7 Uh, all the way through verse 14, we see that they ask the Lord to remember how in the past he showed love by delivering those deserving of wrath. So they ask the Lord to remember how in the past he showed love by delivering those deserving wrath. And so we start by seeing here this recounting of the steadfast love of the Lord. And really, God's work in history has always been one of love. Because God could have left humanity to the destruction of its sinfulness, and yet God graciously showed love in saving some. 
we humanity could have been wiped out in the flood and yet what do we read noah found favor with the lord but but that wasn't because he was good enough because noah is a sinful man but rather god showed grace he had steadfast love towards those he showed grace to in turn uh, we see here in the text in verses 8 and 9 that God chose for himself a people and then associated himself with this people. And this is his grace again. He says, surely they are my people. And then when they're afflicted, he was afflicted. He sent the angel of his presence to be with them, to save them, to care for them, to redeem them. He took pity on them. He carried them. He lifted them. He chose for himself a people and then associated himself with that people. In turn, what do we read in verse 10? That they rebelled, they were sinful, and God disciplined his people for their sinful rebellion. And yet, in verses 11 through 14, what do we see? God does not abandon his people. He continually delivered them, even in their sinfulness, for his glory. He remembered Moses and, and how he delivered in the past, and what does he do? So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name, it says, verse 14. He comes in and continually delivers again and again and again and again. We're asking the Lord to remember how he has done this and in turn that we would remember. This is the God we serve. As we, as we consider the blood-soaked splendor, uh, 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 the picture of Jesus and his perfect justice, we need to remember the love that has been poured out upon his people in the past. But not only that, in verses 15 through 19, we see a second request. They ask the Lord to look down and see his people's need for deliverance again. Just like in the past, God showed them grace and yet they rebelled and God disciplined them, but then delivered them again and again and again and again. And what, what do we see here? We see now again, this prayer for deliverance that God's people again need deliverance. Now, we have to remember that the, the direct context here is they're returning, uh, Israel, uh, nation, nation of Israel returning uh, as exiles from, from a Babylonian captivity. And so they felt like they have been disciplined and now they're returning and need God to demonstrate his care and deliverance on them. But then we also look forward to the coming of uh, the anointed one, the Christ, Jesus, as we know him now, and that through his coming, true, perfect deliverance from sin is granted to all who would trust and believe in him. Yet in turn, the, the, the fullness of that deliverance is yet to come at the second coming. And so um, as Israel was looking towards their return from exile and then beyond that towards the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus Christ, now we who are on this side of the cross, Jesus has already come and has already paid for our sins if we would but trust in him. Now, what do we look forward to? We look forward to the day of his second coming. And our prayer is that he would deliver Deliver us now in this time. And what do we see here? We see that his deliverance takes zeal, might, or, or power would be another word for that, and compassion. We see that in verse 15, that, that zeal and might toward, would, would be shown towards the oppressor and compassion towards the oppressed, that his people would be shown this compassion as he zealously and mightily stands up for them. Because currently, what, is it, what are they saying? 
They feel like these things are being held back from them. We live in a world where, uh, where we still see sin within us and then without us. And we look at the world and we say, Jesus has come, but yet it doesn't seem like Jesus is reigning in the world at large. We're still waiting for this. Yes, he is reigning in our hearts, but we're waiting for him to, to demonstrate his rule and reign as king of the universe in its fullness. Feels like it's being held back. Not only that, in verse 16, deliverance is motivated by the covenant relationship. Here we pray to uh, our God, you are our father. Though Abraham doesn't know us, the one whom you gave the, 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 the Abrahamic covenant to, and Israel does not acknowledge us, the one you gave the Mosaic covenant to, yet you are our father. These verses go beyond national Israel to all of God's people. You are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. They're appealing to the covenant that God made ultimately in eternity past with the covenant of redemption that, that, that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit would redeem for themselves a people. And because of such a covenant, and then in turn the covenant of grace that was given out to God's people, and ultimately, ultimately the, the new and final covenant in Jesus Christ, we are depending upon you as our Father because we put our trust in Jesus, your Son, that you will look down and see and bring deliverance. And in turn, verse 17, God's deliverance is, is his sovereign prerogative. Oh Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Now he's not trying to, to throw the blame onto God, but what is he trying to say? He's trying to say, the longer you wait, the harder it is for us. Why do you wait? Sin, sin still exists within us. And I understand that each day I struggle with sin. I wrestle with sin. And there's a part of me that cries out, how long till I have to fight sin no more? Until you come and eradicate sin in my heart and life. That's, that's where he goes in verse 17. Return for the sake of your servants. We need you. We desperately need you. And come, this deliverance with perfect justice, verse 18 and 19. Perfect justice that will crush all adversaries. Right now, the adversaries had trampled down your sanctuary. So come and trample them. Perfect justice will also be the removal of all sin. We're becoming like those whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. We, we feel be, ourselves being worn down by it, yet your perfect justice will come and remove all our sinfulness. And so they're, they're asking the Lord to look down and see his people's need for deliverance again. And then in turn, we get to chapter 64 and the third request. Ask the Lord to act in power and perfect justice consistent with his grace and love. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That you would display your power. That the mountains might shake. Verses 1 and 2 is just a call for God to display his power. And then verses 3 and 4, 
uh, are linking it back to the power that was on display at Mount Sinai when the mountain quaked and, and was like aflamed with fire and the people hid their faces and hid themselves away in the tent and ultimately said, Moses, you go up and speak to God. We are going to hide because we are afraid. I mean, that was the, the power of God on display. In turn, this is, this is what is promised in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 26 through 29, where it says, at that time, his voice shook the earth, looking back at Mount Sinai. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Come down in power. Verse 5, God coming down, showing a consistency of character in his justice. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness and who remembers you in your ways. So those who are righteous and those who are followers of you, you will be gracious towards and demonstrate your love. But behold, you are angry and we sinned and in our sinfulness. We have been a long time. Shall we be saved? Verse 6 and 7 describes our sinful state, deserving justice. God is going to be consistent with his justice. And what about us who are sinful? We're claiming to be God's people, and yet we struggle with sin. In fact, the description here, we are like ones who are unclean, and even our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like leaves. Our iniquity like winds take us away. Sometimes, sometimes God's people, Christians living in this world, don't look a whole lot different than, than those who have not trusted Christ because they're choosing to live in sin. So much so that there's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and made us melt in the hands of our iniquities that ultimately, if left to ourselves, none of us would be saved. That's the state all of us are in apart from Jesus Christ. God's people are only, are only better off than other people in the world because Jesus was gracious. They didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. Jesus Jesus was loving and gracious and merciful to us. And that's why, and that's where he goes next. God's grace and love in verses eight and nine. But now, O oh Lord, you are our father. Again, reminding them of this covenant relationship that we have with him that is all of grace that could not be earned. What does he say? We are the clay. You are our potter. You are the one who makes us. You are the one who molds us. We are saved by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in turn, we are new creations created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are just clay that the potter is molding. We are all the work of your hand. Speaking of God's people, you have made us your people. We could not make ourselves. 
You have made us. So be not so terribly angry, O Lord. Remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Again, the covenant, the ultimately the new covenant in Jesus Christ is what? That his blood is shed for the remission of sin. That, that we can then claim this before God. Yes, we are sinful, but you are our father. We are your people through the blood of Jesus Christ, the covenant that has been given to us that was pictured in the, the Mosaic covenant as the lambs were slain for sin, but has now been perfected as Jesus Christ gives himself once for all the righteous for the unrighteous. And we come to verses 11 and 12, where he requests again for God to act in power and justice consistent with his grace. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. And this is what happened when Babylon came in. They destroyed, they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple. Zion's become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation, our holy city, this beautiful house where our fathers praise you has been burned by fire. All our pleasant places have become ruined. And this is something that, that uh, when Isaiah is writing, has not even happened yet. And yet the, the look forward to is, is Babylonian captivity. Uh, but in turn, it's truly true of the entirety of the world that sin has destroyed. Sin has come to destroy, but not just the world, each of us individually. Sin has placed us in a place where our destruction is sure. We stand under the wrath of God, going to be trampled like grapes in a wine press under his perfect justice. This is what sin has done. And yet we look forward. We look forward to that perfect justice because it will make all things right. For those who trust in Jesus Christ, it will be our year of redemption. We will be fully and finally saved to not struggle with sin any longer. And in turn, our world will be set right as well. So that all those who remain in their sin and rebellion against God will be crushed under his feet and will be cast into eternal judgment, and sin will no longer have dominion over God's earth. It will no longer have any power, because Jesus will completely and utterly conquer it. He has dealt the death blow on the cross, but he is returning to demonstrate his power over sin and death. So we cry out with, with Isaiah here as he's praying on behalf of God's people, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Will you leave us in this state? And we know what the answer is no, he will not. He is returning. He is coming in his blood-soaked splendor to bring his perfect justice. So number three, how can we connect this to everyday Life. Well, first of all, express your thankfulness for the perfect justice of future glory. Now, again, maybe you struggle with, with the fact that those who remain in their sin are going to be crushed 
under the perfect justice of Jesus Christ. And I understand that. I get that. It is a hard thing. It is a difficult thing to embrace the wrath and anger of God against sin. And yet, without it, without it, we cannot understand his holiness and his grace and his love. And so we need to express our thankfulness for it, even as we struggle with it. But in turn, we also have to understand that that perfect justice brings for those of us who are his people a a, a perfection, a glorification, where our struggle with sin will no longer exist. And so express your thankfulness for the perfect justice of future glory. Maybe, Maybe, again, painting that perfect justice against the backdrop of of humanity's struggle right now to even find uh, some aspect of justice in and of itself and how much we fall short of justice should cause us to be so thankful for the perfect justice that Jesus brings. Second thing, pray with the knowledge of God's past works. Say, how, how do I know about God's past works? Read the scriptures, specifically read the Old Testament. It is written there as an example for us and opportunities for us to see who God is and how he works and in turn to to pray with this kind of knowledge. The reason why Isaiah is able to, to ask his first request is because of the knowledge he has of God's past works. And so we need to have that too. So if you've ever wondered, why do I read the Old Testament? Can I just read the New Testament, read about Jesus? Well, no, we, we need to understand the Old Testament because there it describes who God is, and it, and it sets everything up for Jesus' coming and for the Messiah to come. So we need that. And so in order for you to pray with that kind of knowledge, you need to study God's word specifically in the Old Testament. But then pray with the expectation of God's future work. Pray with the expectation of God's future work that he is coming to make all things right. And you say, well, where do I go for that? Well, obviously, uh, the book of Revelation would be a great place to study that. But also, as I looked in the book of Hebrew, um, we saw that as well there. And so continue to study God's word so that you can pray with the knowledge of God's past works and with the expectation of God's future works. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to close this off with reading our benediction. It comes from 2 John verse 3. that says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God, the Father, and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. If you have any questions or would like us to pray for you, uh, please contact us. We'd love to talk with you. That uh, You can find the contact information on the last page of this video. God bless.